When we come to any of the letters that are written there in the New Testament by James, Peter, uh, Paul, John, as we have here, First John 1 and 2, we're dealing, I think, with a situation where these inspired writers had been in their time preachers, and they had preached the gospel and baptized a number of people, and had established churches, maybe typically I would imagine house churches, in the areas in which they, they worked. And then, some years later, they are writing to these people, those brethren and sisters that they had uh, converted and the ecclesias they'd set up, because those ecclesias were running into difficulties. And so, in a sense, all the letters that we've got here in the later New Testament, after, um, after the Acts of the Apostles, all these letters are kind of problem-oriented. They're written to deal with specific issues, specific problems. And I think the, the simple thing was that however many years after the conversion of these brethren and sisters it was, I presume 10 years, 20 years, possibly 30 years, there was a falling away. And this falling away was multifaceted. It was partly due to false teachers coming in, spreading wrong ideas. It was partly due to personal frictions as tends to happen over a period of time with any group of people people falling out with each other people wanting power people manipulating to get their own way and it was the pull of the world and of course there was persecution going on at this time there was a, a conscious program it seems by the, by the Jews to undermine the, the Christians trying to get Christians to turn back to keep in the law to rejoin the synagogue etc and there was opposition from the Romans, there was the beginnings of what was to become Gnosticism and uh, develop into full-blown Trinitarianism later on. And all these things were at their early beginnings. And so these brethren, particularly uh, John and Peter and Paul, are, are writing with great concern to these converts that they'd made. And in a sense, many of us are in a similar sort of position. We were baptized, some of us, many years ago now. And there is always, inevitably, the, the loneliness of the long-distance runner. That you do start to droop, and that's how it is. And continually one needs that refocusing. And that's where these letters have their value, their abiding value. Now, John's letter is related very clearly in terms of style to the Gospel of John. And I've suggested when we've uh, done our studies on the Gospels that those four Gospels are really transcripts or some kind of a summary of the Gospel which, for example, John usually preached. And although they all have a lot of points in common, of course, they all address slightly different issues. And I think that uh, the Gospel of John clearly has in mind certain problems arising from, uh, from the Jews and the claims, it seems, of what later became Gnosticism. This uh, various philosophical ideas, shall we say, that were eating away at people's faith. And so they frame their, their Gospel records the, the material they choose, the, uh, the way they put it together, of course, all under inspiration in the final analysis. But they did this for a specific purpose. And as time went on and it became clear that 
the uh, apostles were going to die out, then what they said as their sort of standard series of addresses about the gospel was put together into the form that we now have it in the gospels. And that is, of course, how books tend to come to be written of a non-fiction nature anyway. People who regularly are lecturing about something and then eventually the lectures are put together in a written form and then they're revised a bit and then a book comes out. That's quite normal. Now let's remember that the vast majority of people in the first century were illiterate. And that's the significance of the fact that all the Gospels, Mark in particular, would appear to be designed for memorization particularly if you translate them into Aramaic, which would have been the the common language of most people in in Palestine. And so John's uh, written his gospel, or it's under the process of inspiration produced that gospel, which was a transcript of the sort of message that he gave to people and the, the message that had been believed by these people that he's now writing to in the first of John. And that's why there's so many similarities of language, illusion, etc. between uh, John's gospel and the, the epistles of John. He says... In 1 John 2, verse 24, Let that abide in you which you heard from from the beginning. And if that which you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also shall abide in the Son and in the Father. What did they hear from the beginning? Remember that I'm suggesting that most of the converts were illiterate. What they heard from the beginning was the Gospel of John. And I think he's saying, look, keep on reciting in your minds that basic gospel about Jesus. The gospel, as you've got it from, you know, John 1 through 21. And when within the gospel of John, the Lord Jesus himself, in John 8:31 talks about abiding in his word. And in John 15, verse 7, if his word abides in us, then he will abide in us in response to that. I think those sort of passages are alluding to this need for those early converts to keep on reciting in their mind the gospel. And I suggest that the answer to our drooping and our uh, falling away and our just the loneliness of the long-distance runner kind of syndrome, which these people were going through in John's time, uh, John's, John's converts here, I think... Keep focused on the gospel records. I really do think that we should make a serious effort to try to memorize at least one of the gospels. And don't say that you can't do it. I I know a number of people who have done it. Uh, Some of them very simple people, some of them very intelligent people. In In any case, we are literate people. And we have access to all manner of different little gadgets that you can carry around with you and have the gospel with you. I would suggest that in all our Bible reading and Bible study, every day we should be having some contact with the gospel records because we should be Christ-centered. That is the focus that there should be in us. And all this emphasis that he makes about the word abiding in you, you've got it in chapter 3, verse 9, that God's seed abides in him. And this is how we are born of God. 
this has got to keep on abiding in in us. And so, yes, this is an appeal that I'm making for, if you like, Bible reading, for regular regular contact with with the basics of the gospel and all these other problems morally, doctrinally, interpersonal relationships, they somehow will find their answer and their context in the regular reading of the Gospels and having Jesus, as he's presented there, abiding in us. So I'm not uh, saying that we should be Bible-centered so much as saying that we should be Jesus-centered. That is the essence of, of Christianity. Now he says in chapter 1 verse 4 in the RV uh, here in 1 John we're writing these things so that your joy may be fulfilled and he's without doubt using the very same words that he recorded on the lips of Jesus in John 15 verse 11 where Jesus says I, I have said this to you that your joy may be fulfilled and John is saying I'm writing this to you, I'm saying this to you, so that your joy may be fulfilled. So he's associating himself really with Jesus. He sees himself as a manifestation of Jesus. And that is exactly what we are, because we are his body in this world. And so he's approaching them, he's talking to them in that very same context, that we are Jesus, and he had been Jesus to them. And in your witness to this world, you also are him, because it's so true. He has no hands or legs or face in this world apart from you and me. And that was especially true, I think, of an illiterate population. And so he says in verse 3, 1 John 1 verse, verse 3, <clears throat> he talks about that which we declared unto you. And he talks about the life, the eternal life, which was with the Father. Uh, verse, uh, verse 2, and which was manifested unto us. He's talking about Jesus. And he calls Jesus the life. In the same way as <clears throat> in the Gospels, and Luke particularly, the kingdom of God is put as a title for Jesus. Jesus says the kingdom of God is among you, and he means Messiah is among you because Jesus is the essence of his kingdom and here the eternal life is spoken of really I think it's almost a a way of talking about Jesus because Jesus the life that he lived is the kind of life which he will eternally live and it is the kind of life which we will eternally live And in that sense, as John often says in his gospel, or records in his gospel, we can have eternal life right now. And that doesn't mean that we shall not die, we will die. But the sort of life that we can live right now is the life which we will eternally live. And in that sense, we are part of God's kingdom now. And although we shall die physically, We are living the type of life which we will eternally live. There is that connection between us now and who we shall eternally be. And don't forget that the Bible teaches personal salvation, that Duncan will be saved. It's not that we 
will somehow just be there's a total disconnect between our lives now and who we shall eternally be we shall be saved we shall see Abraham, Isaac and Jacob etc in the kingdom and so he's saying that I think again to refocus them because there they were bombarded by all these different ideas getting a bit tired and fed up with the whole thing and starting to lose their focus and he's elevating them to this level to say look be Christ centred and remember that Jesus is the eternal life I mean he said again recorded by John I am the way the truth and the life I am the life so then he the kind of person that he was is who he will eternally be and insofar as we are living in him we also are living the kind of life which we shall eternally live and that is uh, quite a challenge I guess the other way or another way in which John tries to challenge this slipping into the mire of mediocrity the slipping into endless argument and being influenced by every wind of doctrine and uh, all sorts of uh, personal disagreements that were arising I think his emphasis in chapter 4 on love well in fact there's a focus on love all the way through uh, his letter um, that emphasis I would say suggests that in the community he was writing to there was not the love that there should have been there was a, a falling out anyway he has a lot to say about judgment and I think he's trying to refocus their minds upon the ultimate reality of the judgment which is to come and the connection which there is between our lives right now and our eternal destiny if you look at chapter 2 verse 9 he says he that says he's in the light and hates his brother is in the darkness even until now he that loves his brother abides in the light and there is no occasion of stumbling in him but he that hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness now there's a pretty big emphasis in the gospels that the rejected at the day of judgment will be thrown out into darkness if you just want to scribble the references these are Matthew 8 12 22 I'm just turning over a few pages of your Bibles to Jude 13 you'll see again this, this connection of darkness with rejection at the day of judgment he says that for them, for these for false teachers, there is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. And yet he says that right now in this life, if you hate your brother, you're living in darkness. You are living, as it were, in condemnation. Now there couldn't really be a stronger exhortation, really, to once and for all love our brethren because if we do not we are voting ourselves out of God's kingdom and that is as simple as that and yet darkness is also used in John and really quite often in the New Testament as a symbol of, of the world the world, the unbelieving world is associated with darkness so I think the, the comments that uh, the rejected will go out into the darkness it's really saying that they will go back into the world 
they will share this world's judgment. In the same way as Jesus said that if you offend one of the little ones, it's better that a millstone is thrown around your neck and you're cast into the sea. That's exactly Babylon's judgment in Revelation 18. They have a millstone put around her neck and thrown into the sea. So I think he's saying that the, the rejected will, as Paul says, 1 Corinthians 11, be condemned with the world. And yet he's saying that if you hate your brother, you, will, right, you are right now walking in the darkness. You are actually in the world. And the great paradox is that why within a Christian community would a Christian hate his brother? Well, from what I have seen in, I don't know how many years I have been baptized now, getting on 30 years, what I have seen as the reason why people seem to hate each other within the community is not so much, not, not normally, because somebody stole some money out of my pocket or, you know, some practical disagreement. But the hatred is because of disagreement over doctrine and over issues of fellowship. So it's very often the conservatives, the conservatives who are the ones who have the anger and the hatred against their brethren, because it's their boundaries that have been crossed and messed with. And so they who appear to be so righteous and so knowledgeable of the scriptures, etc., etc., it's very often that type who runs this great risk of walking in darkness. But the point is, we can all have hatred in our, in our hearts. You can hate those conservatives back. And this is true in any level, I think, of church level or just families or whatever. The point is, we've got to take this absolutely deadly seriously. That we make the answer right now as to what shall eternally happen it's not that um, at the day of judgment somehow the books will be opened and everything will be gone through we actually know God's judgments God's word is called his judgments and therefore there should be no great enigma attached to the day of judgment uh, I suspect there is for all of us but I think that that is a sign of our lack of faith and our lack of perception there's no reason, as, a, as I can see it, why that should be the case. And I say that even though I'm afraid it is the case with me. There, there is a sense of uh, slight enigma about the whole thing. Because we, are, of course, are not the judges. And yet, really, the Bible says so much about judgment that, you know, Paul says, Romans, we are declared right right now. And yet, those who have been declared right in this amazing grace that is available to us in Christ, those very people can walk out into the darkness, can say, no, I don't want all this, because of their attitude to their brother. Now, this is, again, the lesson of the prodigal son. The whole parable is not about the, the younger son, really. The whole point is, in the end stress of the parable, and the parables often have a kind of an end stress to them, the whole point is that the older brother is outside, the party, he walks out and he's outside that's how the story finishes he's outside of God's kingdom he's outside of the messianic banquet because he says I can't stick my kid brother if he's here 
I'm not here. I'm out of here. It's tragic. It really is tragic. But this is what goes on. If we cannot control our feelings towards our brother. Now he emphasizes in verse uh, 28. the, The fact that if we abide in him. When he shall appear, we may have confidence or boldness and not be ashamed before him or from before him at his coming. That is an absolute possibility for us. That if you do not have that hate and anger in your heart against your brother, you can look forward with confidence, with boldness to the coming of Jesus and to your appearance before him. And I've looked at that Greek word that's translated confidence or boldness, sort of kind of hoping it might mean something else, but it it, it doesn't. That's what it means. And we can have that if we don't have that hatred for our brother and if we've overcome that. And yet, how do we get to that position? What's our motive? And it sort of starts, I think, the other way round. It, it is because we believe God and take God at his word that we will be in his kingdom that we can then start to think, but you know, I should not be there because I'm a sinner. And then you start to feel, wow, I really have been forgiven. It is all wonderfully true. The good news is good news, not an endless enigma, an endless uh, fearful possibility that I may be saved or I may not be saved, we should be able to say confidently that if the Lord returns right now, I believe by his grace that I will be in his kingdom. Now if you believe that, if you believe that, you can't be passive to that. You will not, you will not judge your brother. You will not hate your brother. All those things will be displaced by that faith. And therefore, you get into this upward spiral. You see, he says here that if you don't have this hatred for your brother, and chapter 4 is pretty clear about this, then we can have this confidence and this boldness before him at his coming. And I think that when people don't have that confidence that they will be saved, I don't know why that is. It's multifactorial, I guess. It could simply is partly, I guess, just a lack of faith. A lack of faith in God's word. And it's also a lack of realization of the depth of our own sin and the the wonder of forgiveness. Now, if we don't have those things, we will not be so confident that we will be in God's kingdom. And therefore, in return, we will not uh, be in a position, in a status, whereby all anger against others for all that they have done and we fear they might do or suspect they might have done, when all that is gone, all that is displaced by this utter certainty that we will be there, that I have been forgiven. This is the motivation, because otherwise we don't have, I guess, enough uh, strength within, enough uh, steel within our own wills to be able to say that, well, 
okay, I, I will make myself forgive this person, I will make myself not be angry. You almost can't do that. You almost can't force yourself not to hate somebody. There's got to be some other factor working. Of course, you go to a psychotherapist and they can uh, suggest various mind games that you can play that may or may not work to some extent. And I would say that all that psychotherapy works to some extent, but not completely. I don't know anyone who's gone through a course of psychotherapy for hatred problems, anger problems or whatever, who's come out of it and said, yep, sure, yep, I had that problem, went there, got it fixed, and now I'm good. Yeah, it, it alleviates it, that's all. And maybe just helping to understand the process helps to, to, to some degree. I would submit that the only thing that can really radically change us in this area of loving our brother, because we're all here thinking, yikes, I don't want to be in the category of the person who hates their brother because then I'm walking in condemnation. The only motivation that we have, I believe, is the Christian one, which is that I realize the depth of my sinfulness. I'm convicted by the cross of Christ for my, the depth of my sin, and yet I believe that in that same cross, in that same sacrifice, there is the assurance that truly I am totally forgiven and I will be in God's kingdom. Once you really believe that and you really feel that, then, then you have the motivation to live with a mindset that is free from this uh, hating of our brother that he talks about earlier in this chapter. And, you know, it all becomes sort of self-reinforcing. It's an upward spiral. That, therefore, we have confidence and boldness in that day. Not because we're thinking, oh, good for me, I don't hate my brother. No, the boldness and confidence is because we really believe that we are in Christ. And the time has uh, shot by, but... Um, there's a lot of allusions in 1 John 2 and 3 to baptism and to, I think, things that maybe were said or done at the baptism services. Um, verse 6, he that says he abides in him. Apparently, this was one of the first century baptism formulas that the, uh, the person being baptized basically made a, a a statement, a contract, that I promise to abide in him. Um, <clears throat> verse 23, um, he that confesses the Son has the Father. I, I wonder if that is the confession of baptism. But my time's gone. My, my point is that why is he on about baptism and the significance of the fact you've been baptized? It's the same with Paul writing to the Romans in Romans 6 about baptism. He's writing to people who've already been baptized. And he's trying to get them to see the, the wonderful and amazingly deep implications of the fact that you are in Christ. Because if you are in Christ, then you are counted as if you are him. And therefore you can have confidence, have that boldness before God and before Jesus at the day of judgment.